take three. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Brainworms podcast, the podcast that only serves to remind you that your favorite writers were awful people and you should never learn about or respect them. It's true. I'm Joe. I'm David. I'm Kane. And I'm Chris. And today, to underline that point, we're going to be discussing famous dead racist Howard Phillips Lovecraft because it is still the spooky fucking month of October and we're doing spooky times. Our partner podcast, The Butcher Block Horror Podcast, is discussing a film that was based on this famous short novel. And Kane, what is the what is the name of that film? The name of that film is The Curse. The Curse. And it is an awkward mess. It's a weird time. It's a weird, weird time. So if you're interested in the the cinematic influence of dead racist H.P. Lovecraft's literary legacy, <laughs> you can pop over to, to that podcast available everywhere that we are available and you can experience that. Only we're nakeder. Well, I mean, we, we could all be naked just all the time. They don't know. This is radio. You guys are wearing clothes? No. I thought we no. had just established that. Fully nude. Oh. Look, if you guys thought that TV broadcasting was, you know, skirting the edge, you have no idea what's going on in radio. You have no idea how many naked men I have in my room just, just standing around at my whim. I like your style. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. I, I can't really find any, as long as they're there by consent. Yeah. Right. Oh, oh, that's, that's what I forgot. God damn it. Don't kidnap you, men. Uh, don't, don't, don't do that. That's don't, wrong. Yeah. Or at least don't talk about it into a hot microphone if you're if you're going to do it. There are some things that aren't funny. That's true. Namely, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft. It's not funny. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. I actually have a a quote. Do we? Do, do you really want to quote? Him? It's not. It's not anything okay. that he said. It, it's about him. <laughs> Very good. Very good. I was going to say if we could avoid quoting him. Um, it's actually a quote about H.P. Lovecraft by biographer and i apologize to french speakers if i butcher this michel huelbeck who said about hp lovecraft the character of lovecraft fascinates us partly because his system of values is entirely opposed to ours fundamentally racist openly reactionary he glorifies puritan inhibition and quite evidently finds repellent any open displays of eroticism which means he would hate this podcast so much. Yeah, we do talk about dicks a lot. It's a very it's a very yeah. horny podcast. All his life he maintained a typically aristocratic attitude of scorn for humanity in general, together with an extreme solicitude toward individuals in person. Which yeah, I feel like that sums it up. He just hated and was afraid of everyone who was not like himself. Which no one was like him, so <laughs> that pretty much meant well, everyone. he was agoraphobic, right? right? No. He was not. Wasn't he? I thought I no. actually do remember hearing that. There was suggestions of the such, but it was less that and more that he was so socially awkward mm -hmm. and uh, like just afraid of people right. that he would avoid interacting with them as much as possible. But I mean, it's, it's, it's important to remember as well that he got fucking married mm -hmm. and he moved to Red Hook. Right. Well, if he's uh, aristocratic, was that like a family bloodlines marriage no. sort of thing or no. whatever he, it's called? No, no. See, there's there's some misconceptions about his aristocracy. He wanted to be an aristocrat, but he fucking wasn't. Right. The end of his life was him living with his two aunts, I think. Yeah. In complete poverty. 
Mm-hmm. He was not an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. He was uh, an Angliophile. Like he yeah. uh, was obsessed with it. He was a fucking incel. Yes. Oh my god. He yeah. Absolutely. A... Nail on the head. He was the early 1900s version of incel. Mm-hmm. But he did get married, and he lived with his wife, which I believe. I mean, I would have to check some of my old because I used to be pretty obsessed with with H.P. Lovecraft. I've got him <laughs> tattooed on me. Right, I was the H.P. Lovecraft apologist, <laughs> <laughs> and the argument, you know, he was a man of his time. No, he he was just wrong. Yeah, he, he was, was racist not. even by the standard. Exactly, there was some pretty heavy racism in the early 1900s. He took that above and beyond. Yeah, and he wasn't just racist. He was also a classist, even though his station wasn't above anyone else. Uh, He did have an inheritance that he lived on for most of his life. So I think he came from money. Yes. But but his his actual lifestyle was not not of that. No. But he did create an amazing mythos. He did. He was the the originator of a lot of ideas that other people better and less awful people have used to, to great effect over the decades. Yeah. Thomas Ligotti, mm-hmm. uh, Caitlin Arkeerne. Yeah, Caitlin oh, Arkeerne yeah. for sure. She's I mean, like the stuff that she's done. Oh in yeah. Weird fiction has just been amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Bright is his name. Brian, Brian, Billy Martin, Billy Martin mm. is wrote some cool Lovecraft. weird fiction. Mm-hmm derivative of uh who wrote the king in yellow yes no, he, he, he definitely did, he stole took, some ideas yeah he definitely okay, took both, some ideas both of you yeah. said yes and no <laughs> so it was a weird thing go ahead david there was this whole thing in literature at that time where mm-hmm. you know, lovecraft and several of his contemporaries were sort of edging around the same pool mm-hmm. of like weird fiction and proto fantasy I guess. And so they would write things and they would recognize each other's work and they would sort of write letters and communicate back and forth. And I don't, rec- I think The King in Yellow actually predates Lovecraft. It did. Oh, by, by a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he was definitely inspired by and used that concept to build upon, which other writers have then done with Lovecraft's work. He was mm-hmm. also really into so, Poe. So, so it is derivative. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there there was a, a quote where H.P. Lovecraft was was lamenting his his work. Uh, when I read The King in Yellow after Love, Lovecraft, I was like, oh man, this is like all the imagination of H.P. Lovecraft, but if it was actually written <laughs> well. Yeah. Because that's, that's the other thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Absolutely love H.P. Lovecraft's work. I don't think the man was a good writer. No, No, I completely agree with you. And like Kane, I was also a pretty big Lovecraft apologist for a while. Now, again, I have the man's face in zombie form tattooed on my arm. Mm -hmm. But I've always sort of recognized that he was not good at what he did. No. He, He had an incredibly large vocabulary yes he did and uh he was in a far-reaching imagination yes yeah and he was a very vividly imaginative person you know it's the quote the oldest and strongest human emotion is fear the strongest fear is the fear of the unknown yeah truly with that quote alone you can tell that he did have some self-awareness because everything that he wrote about all of the horror of his work is completely built around him being this xenophobic just shut in Mm -hmm. 
take the idea that other people are scary because you don't know who they are or what their culture is or what they might do and extrapolate that out into beings that just think of humans the way that white Europeans traditionally think of brown people. Right. And that is the crux of the horror that is H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. He, he had a thing where... He was like, I have my Byron work, I have my Poe work, but where is my Lovecraft work? Mm -hmm. So he was constantly comparing himself to other writers. Right. Which can be good and bad, yeah. depending on what you're shooting for. But a small silver lining, apparently, as a result of the Great Depression. I don't know if he got less racist, but he did become more progressive toward the end of his life. Apparently, he was a fan of Roosevelt and the New Deal, so do what you want with that i know that you know i haven't read a lot about you know because i think his name's st joshi yeah, yeah. joshi mm -hmm. that dude is the end all be all of knowledge about lovecraft yeah right and i know he's dug into it and apparently his move to red hook mm -hmm. was both really bad and really good because it kind of forced him to kind of look forward a little bit more mm-hmm but I don't know how much he did because right. there's there's certain stories by H.P. Lovecraft that I can't read at all anymore. Yeah, no, I get that. But like, there's things like The Outsider. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a fucking fantastic. And I, I was listening to our podcast and I say fucking fantastic a lot. So I'm going to try to avoid <laughs> doing that again. Sure. But that it's wonderful. Fucking fantastic. The Outsider is a wonderful story. Mm -hmm. You know, the prose is obviously not that great because it's he fucking hp lovecraft he wasn't good at it right he wasn't good at it but the the stories themselves like the concept of the stories are what are good yeah the right. execution the, 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 the is what's bad imagination mm -hmm. there's a reason why in 2020 they're still making movies based off of his stories oh yeah right although interestingly i have a hard time thinking of any actually good film adaptations of Lovecraft work. Uh, from uh, Beyond? Fuck you. Reanimator? Reanimator. Reanimator is not a good movie. Yes, it is. Shut it's up. It's a Thank great you, Chris. movie. It's an amazing movie. But it's not a good movie. Ex yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, well, I mean, I aside from the fact that I think that you're just wrong <laughs> by many different accounts, H.P. Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator mm -hmm. is probably one of the best horror movies out of that era. It is actually an incredibly good movie. It's a poor adaptation of the source material. Because it's better than the source material. <laughs> true, true, true. I'll, I'll grant you that. And I haven't seen the uh, Nicolas Cage. It's really yeah? good. Okay. It's good. Yeah, okay. watch it. It saddens me that butcher block can't really cover it it's too new and too cgi right yeah why are we doing color out of space why didn't we do reanimator i think it was brought up to do mm -hmm. reanimator and you said that the story was too short and i was like oh okay yeah that is what it was the story is too short to make an actual right. episode out of that is correct uh real quick before i forget i do want to give lovecraft some credit that in his later years he was able to alter mindsets um it's it's not too common that you find people after their intelligence is crystallized to still be able to learn and adapt well, we don't know how much he learned. In yeah, yeah, no. No, no. I mean, I mean, the simple fact that there was any alteration. Right. Yeah, because he could have just dug in and gotten worse. Right. Well, I mean, I know that he he did not buy new suits mm -hmm. because he didn't like modern cuts to his suits. 
And so he just had his old suits retailored. Mm -hmm. I know that. Total incel move. I'm pretty sure that his wife was Jewish. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's that. that that doesn't fix no hell no you know and that, that that's another reason why we we really couldn't do herbert west reanimator whereas color out of space doesn't have any of the denigration of people of color that exists in a lot of those other works yeah that's true you know herbert west reanimator has some pretty gnarly shit about a black man right and I'm mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. I'm not okay with that story. Right. Yeah, definitely. You know, rats in the walls, same fucking thing. Oh yeah. Rats in the walls. Terrible <sighs> yeah. For that, in that way. Uh, have we, have we pontificated well, I just, enough? I, I think there's one way that we can determine whether or not Lovecraft truly did become a better person as he got older. Okay. When he was older and living in Red Hook, did he have any cats and what did he name them? yeah 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 and if you're curious about that listeners just look it up you know honestly don't don't (laughs) don't dive into it it's better to say that where lovecraft alive today i would punch him in the face Mm -hmm. yeah he'd be very popular on the internet he He would. would Oh, oh Lord, can you imagine if young Lovecraft had a Twitter? I've just oh, thought of a really great idea. <laughs> I don't think you I don't think you could it's not a good idea. I don't think it'll go well, David. An alternate way of looking at that situation with the advances in the internet and a sort of quasi world consciousness and all that, imagine what kind of fiction he would have wrote. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, written. I mean, it still written, would have written, been terrible, yeah. but it would have been good ideas that other yeah. authors would have gotten a hold of and did something good. Yeah, I mean that that counts, right? You know, like if you're, you know, because his writing circle had what Robert, Robert Block, uh, mm-hmm. Robert Howard, for that matter. Yeah, Robert yeah. Howard. Uh, let's see, Clark Ashton Smith. Mm-hmm. August Derelith. Yep, yep, yep. Surprisingly, no women. What? Yeah, weirdest I thing. I can't weirdest believe it. Thing. I can't believe it. It's it's also really crazy that just from like 1840 to like 1950, no women wrote any books. Isn't None, that the craziest yeah. thing? They just they, they just didn't. It didn't occur to them. Yeah, to write yeah. books until yeah. Oh, man. Now that I'm depressed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, now that we're all sad, that seems I'm like a sad. good time to remind you that if you like the show, the best and an absolutely free way to support it is definitely like, comment, subscribe, recommend us to your friends. And don't forget to windmill the, the wizard. What? Yeah, that's what? fine. It, it, what is windmilling the wizard? Don't don't pursue it. Don't. Okay. Let, let it go. Just click the bell. Click the bell. We'll, we'll do the things. But if you if you are in a position, and no, there's obviously no obligation, but if you are in a position to support the show in a monetary way, uh, we do have a Patreon. And at certain support levels, you, you unlock genuinely cool things, uh, content that other people don't have access to. So uh, consider it if you can. And you can find all of that at our very fine website, wegiveyoubrainworms.com. Wegiveyoubrainworms.com? Wegiveyoubrainworms.com. <laughs> We give you brainworms.com. Excellent. Excellent. Tell me all about it. Why, just go there yourself and find out, young man. (laughs) It's got a yell at me button. It does. You can yell directly at us. In fact, there are a ton of ways you can yell at us. Find your favorite. (laughs) But make sure you do it in all caps. 
Yeah. Um, now we've spent 20 minutes uh, of our book podcast not reading a book. Do we want to get into the book part? Or... No. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, I guess. <laughs> Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. Esquire. <laughs> he wishes. Yeah. <laughs> West of Arkham, the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There, Don't let the Joker out. There are dark, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentler slopes there are farms, ancient and rocky with squat, moss-coated cottages brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges. But these are all vacant now, the wide chimneys crumbling and the shingled sides bulging perilously beneath low, gambrel roofs. The old folk have gone away, and foreigners do not like to live there. French Canadians have tried it, Italians have tried it, and the Poles have come and departed. It is not because of anything that can be seen or heard or handled, but because of something that is imagined. The place is not good for the imagination and does not bring restful dreams at night. It's like America. Yeah. <laughs> it must be this which keeps the foreigners away, for old Ami Pierce has never told them of anything he recalls from the strange days. Ami, whose head has been a little queer for years, is the only one who still remains or whoever talks of the strange days. And he dares to do this because his house is so near the open fields and the traveled roads around Arkham. There was once a road over the hills and through the valleys that ran straight where the blasted heath is now. But people ceased to use it and a new road was laid curving far toward the south. Traces of the old one can still be found amidst the weeds of a returning wilderness. And some of them will doubtless linger even when half the hollows are flooded for the new reservoir. <laughs> Then the dark woods will be cut down and the blasted heath will slumber far below blue waters whose surface will mirror the sky and ripple in the sun. And the secrets of the strange days will be the one with the deep secrets. One with the hidden lore of old ocean and all the mystery of primal earth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. Um, a lot yeah. of words. A lot of words. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's evocative and I, I get it. But yeah, it's just, again, very, very wordy. Yeah, it's like he's being paid by the word. Yeah, which, I mean, which Dickens was, so you can mm -hmm. forgive him, but... Yeah, Lovecraft wasn't being paid at all. He, didn't <laughs> he, he liked to write that way. I mean, he would sell them to magazines. Occasionally, yeah. And the, the verboseness, uh, Ray Bradbury's writing was like quicksand. Like, you just got sucked in. Or this is like a hard show. Yeah, like kind you, of you've paying off like, of it. Like, all right, you've made your point. Get on with it. <laughs> it's interesting. It's You say, you know, Bradbury is like a quicksand, and I like that comparison mm -hmm. because it does just sort of you don't even realize that it's happening and suddenly you're just sucked completely into it. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, there's like a hard shell that you have to chip through or like a fucking bramble path. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just so <laughs> dense. Right. And of course he can't get a hundred words in without talking about foreigners. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when I went into the hills and vales to survey for the new reservoir, they told me the place was evil. They told me this in Arkham. And because that is a very old town full of witch legends, I thought the evil must be something which granddams had whispered to children through centuries. Evil! <laughs> evil! Oh, evil! 
Oh, evil. Foreigners. Oh, evil. <laughs> what would a conversation between H.P. Lovecraft and Skeletor be like? <laughs> Fucking what? <laughs> <laughs> the name Blasted Heath seemed to me very odd and theatrical. That's actually my stage name. <laughs> Sounds like a 90s comic book character. <laughs> or the sequel to Reality Bites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Todd yeah, McFarlane uh... presents Blasted Heath. <laughs> I was trying to hold it together, but I couldn't <laughs> blast it. <laughs> He's all pouches and giant machine guns and muscles upon muscles. Yep. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're a hundred percent wrong. Cause this is like the discount flash Gordon. So like, it's, it's like the made on a on a really tight budget that no one watches it <laughs> so he's got like a patch and maybe he'll pick up a rock or I, something, I appreciate just... your uh your assumption that flash gordon is not budget <laughs> flash <a> gordon budget. <laughs> no that's what i mean like more than flash gordon <laughs> like more than that <sighs> yep the name blasted heath seemed to me very odd and theatrical and I wondered how it had come into the folklore of a Puritan people. Then I saw that dark westward tangle of glens and slopes for myself, and ceased to wonder at anything besides its own elder mystery. It was morning when I saw it, but shadow lurked always there. The trees grew too thickly, and their trunks were too big for any healthy New England wood. My trunk is too big for... Wait, what? <laughs> I have some healthy New England wood for you. That would have been a better use of that joke. Yep. My trunk is precisely the size it needs to fit body. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I I went somewhere else. Where what are we talking about? Your trunk. I have no idea. What you're going to do about, with officer. all that junk? Where's the junk? Inside that trunk. Oh. Yeah. Move along. Move along. There was too much silence in the dim alleys between them, and the floor was too soft with the dank moss and mattings of infinite years of decay. This moss is fucking dank, man. <laughs> In the open spaces, mostly along the line of the old road, there were little hillside farms, sometimes with all the buildings standing, sometimes with only one or two, and sometimes with only a lone chimney or fast-filling cellar. Weeds and briars reigned. Chaos reigned. And furtive wild things rustled in the undergrowth. Upon everything was a haze of restlessness and oppression, a touch of the unreal and the grotesque, as if some vital element of perspective or chiaroscuro were awry. I did not wonder that the foreigners would not stay, for this was no region to sleep in. It was too much like a landscape of Salvatore Rosa, too much like some forbidden woodcut in a tale of terror. But even all this was not so bad as the blasted heath. I knew it the moment I came upon it Stop at the bottom of a spacious valley, heath. for no other name could fit such a thing or any other thing fit such a name. It was as if the poet had coined the phrase from having seen this one particular region. It must, I thought as I viewed it, be the outcome of a fire. But why had nothing new ever grown over these five acres of gray desolation that sprawled open to the sky like a great spot eaten by acid in these woods and fields? It lay largely to the north of the ancient road line, but encroached a little on the other side. I felt an odd reluctance about approaching, and did so at last only because my business took me through and past it. There was no vegetation of any kind on that broad expanse, but only a fine gray dust or ash which no wind seemed ever to blow about. This is the most 
emotionless writing. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, we, we get it. It's a big dead area. We get it, yeah. How does the the character whose eyes we're seeing feel about any of this? Don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll not get to that. Yeah. He, he writes prose like like an engineer writing legal documents. I think an engineer would do a better job at legal documents than lawyers. You know, I, I do think, though, there's a, a point because I've got to admit also Tolkien mm-hmm. is... An amazing fantasist, obviously, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. his prose is also just so dry. Yep. We've joked about that on the show before. Right. And so I wonder, you know, at some of this, if it's just a, you know, we're talking about someone who wrote a hundred years ago, obviously styles and tastes change. And there is sort of an iterative nature of art. Sure. We can look back now and say that, you know, someone who was writing in the 14th century Mm -hmm. was incredibly good, Mm -hmm. but the cultural disconnect is so far away. Uh Um, I wonder if it's just, like, this is someone who is still writing modern English. Sure. But doing so in a way that sounds wooden. To mm-hmm. our modern ear, because we're so accustomed to people who have you know been refining this art for yeah, that, decades. Yeah, that's that's a centuries. good point. Like, uh, I might like uh, mm-hmm. wait. I, I, there, there's a point I want to yeah, make. Okay. I guess to to sum up what David is saying, this is sort of like uh, modern painters looking at cave drawings and go, like, "Oh, where's the color? Where's the detail? Right. Is that what you're getting at?" Sort of. Although it would be more like looking back at someone who was a early adopter of modernist techniques in painting Mm -hmm. and judging them because they're not creating photorealistic pencil sketches like people do now. I think that there's some truth to that. And, you know, clearly HP Lovecraft is influenced by, you know, we know that he was by, by Victorian writers, by, by kind of the Gothic aesthetic, but Mary Shelley's Frankenstein holds up to this day as a piece of literature. Agreed. Yeah. Pr- arguably one of my favorite books. Fuck yeah. Not absolutely. even arguably one of, arguably my top favorite book. Right. Because absolutely this this verbosity of description is that style. You know, uh, Dickens wrote that way. Bram Stoker wrote that way. Right. But I think that you can, you know, you can write in that voice and do it with some style and some skill. And I don't know if H.P. Lovecraft is doing that. Also, considering that uh, The King in Yellow predates this and sure. is much more engaging. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Edgar Allan fucking Poe. Right. Yep. too. <laughs> like, he absolutely has that very elaborately describing the texture of a stone wall kind of style. But but it sells because he's good at it. Sure. And, I mean, there's still some Anne Rice, for mm. instance. I'm not a massive fan of Anne no. Rice, but she is fairly good at what she does, but she is incredibly verbose. Right. I, I remember having... Uh, conversations with someone at one point and saying the problem that I have with Anne Rice is that she will spend three pages describing the room Mm -hmm. and then half a paragraph telling you what happens in it. Yeah, no, there's some truth to that for sure. And that's sort of the same feel that I get from Lovecraft. So I agree. And I came up with this little writing rule tell me what you guys think about if it's if there's any validity to it describe something too little and it belongs to no one describe something too much and it belongs to the writer describe something just enough and it belongs to the reader 
Sure. Yeah, and I think you've mentioned that before. I think it's a good... Oh, uh, damn. That's okay. Never hurts to reinforce, right? No, not at all. And it's, it, Especially it, since, it's, since it's relevant to what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and it's a, it's a pretty, uh, pretty solid little foundational thing, I think. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of writing advice, just sort of broad strokes, I think the best advice for any writer is write in a way that works for you Mm -hmm. and then get someone that you trust to help you (laughs) afterward. (laughs) Uh, I just finished my script. George Lucas, will you edit this for me? Oh, good God. (laughs) I mean, let him edit it and then go and ignore everything he said. I I don't know. Just don't let him direct. Just don't let him direct. Or get him to edit and hope that his wife edits it instead. (laughs) At least the film. Mm. Anyway. There was no vegetation of any kind on that broad expanse, but only a fine gray dust or ash which no wind seemed ever to blow about. The trees near it were sickly and stunted, and many dead trunks stood or lay rotting at the rim. As I walked hurriedly by, I saw the tumbled bricks and stones of an old chimney and cellar on my right, and the yawning black maw of an abandoned well whose stagnant vapors played strange tricks with the hues of the sunlight. Even the long, dark woodland climb beyond seemed welcome in contrast, and I marveled no more at the frightened whispers of Arkham people. There had been no house or ruin near. Even in the old days, the place must have been lonely and remote. Shouldn't something have happened by now? (laughs) And at twilight, dreading to repass that ominous spot, I walked circuitously back to town by the curving road on the south. I vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for an odd timidity about the deep skyey voids above had crept into my soul. There you go, Chris. There's some <laughs> internal uh, feelings from the narrator here. He he vaguely wishes for some clouds. <laughs> At least he wants something. <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> in the evening, I asked old people in Arkham about the blasted heath and what was meant by that phrase, strange days, which so many evasively muttered. I could not, however, get any good answers, except that all the mystery was much more recent than I had dreamt. It was not a matter of old legendary at all, but something within the lifetime of those who spoke. It had happened in the 80s, and a family had disappeared or was killed. During the Reagan administration. (laughs) Speakers would not be exact, and because they all told me to pay no attention to old Ami Pierce's crazy tales, I sought him out the next morning having heard that he lived alone in the ancient tottering cottage where the trees first began to get very thick. Yeah, then you get what you, you know, if people everywhere tell you, don't pay attention to this guy, and you specifically Mm -hmm. go and seek him out, you're getting what's coming to you. That's that's all I'm saying. Yeah. It was a fearsomely archaic place, and had begun to exude the faint miasmal odor which clings about houses that have stood too long. Only with persistent knocking could I rouse the aged man, and when he shuffled timidly to the door, I could tell he was not glad to see me. Take the hint. He was not so feeble as I had expected, (laughs) but his eyes drooped in a curious way, and his unkempt clothing and white beard made him seem very worn and dismal. Wow. (laughs) Got him right in the fucking giggle dick. I guess so. (laughs) No, I'm just like... like, just picturing this, this scenario of everyone like don't don't go to that old weird guy and mm. then uh, and then the guy he opens the door and it's just this menacing like aggressive go away look well, not and even this that. like you knock and knock just... and knock and he doesn't answer <laughs> you're like no this is happening <laughs> god damn it and despite so you continue just fucking pounding on this door 
And then he comes out looking crazy in his goddamn pajamas. And you're like, no, this is this 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 is this is gonna happen. Just continue knocking on his forehead, just (laughs) God damn it. Uh, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm done. <laughs> Do you need a minute? Are you good? <laughs> yeah, but I'm okay. Not knowing just how he could best be launched on his tails, I feigned a matter of business, told him of my surveying, and asked vague questions about the district. He was far brighter and more educated than I had been led to think. Wow. And before I knew it, had grasped quite as much of the subject as any man I had talked with in Arkham. He was not like other rustics I had known in the sections where reservoirs were to be. From him, there were no protests at the miles of old wood and farmland to be blotted out, though perhaps there would have been had not his home lain outside the bounds of the future lake. Relief was all that he showed. Relief at the doom of the dark ancient valleys through which he had roamed all his life. They were better underwater now, better underwater since the strange days. And with this opening, his husky voice sank low, while his body leaned forward and his right forefinger began to point shakily and impressively. Oh, God, no. Oh, no. I just... (laughs) This is going to ruin the whole story for me, but I'm just picturing Commander Shepard being the one pursuing this matter. Like, can you tell me about the underwater city? (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of what this protagonist feels like, is, is just a blank slate video game character who's just that you're you're supposed to impose upon yeah that that you're supposed to engage with as the as the player but there's not one because it's it's a fucking book and you can't (laughs) you can't speed run a book (laughs) so you know the, the reader just has to let this happen through the eyes of a person who's not engaging with any of it right and i mean i guess it's it's a decent enough way to make it sort of personalized because in the absence of any details about this main character, you automatically just make assumptions. Sure. I I would give him credit for that if I felt like that was the intention. I don't think that was what he was. No, I don't know. I'm like, again, it's a short story. So you want to get right into the action of it, right? You want to get right into... Is that what this is, David? Are we getting into the action of it right now? As much... As, look, when we're talking about Howard Philip Lovecraft, this is as much into the action as that man ever wanted to get. I know. It's true. Remember, married and then moved to a different town away from his wife. Yep. It was then that I heard the story. And as the rambling voice scraped and whispered on, I shivered again and again despite the summer day. Often, I had to recall the speaker from ramblings, piece out scientific points which he knew only by a fading parrot memory of Professor's talk, or bridge over gaps where his sense of logic and continuity broke down. When he was done, I did not wonder that his mind had snapped a trifle, or that the folk of Arkham would not speak much of the blasted heath. I hurried back before sunset to my hotel, unwilling to have the stars come out above me in the open, and the next day returned to Boston to give up my position. I could not go into that dim chaos of old forest and slope again, or face another time that gray blasted heath where the black well yawned deep beside the tumbled bricks and stones. 
Every time you hear Blasted Heath, take a drink. (laughs) (laughs) The reservoir will soon be built now, and all those elder secrets will be safe forever under watery fathoms. But even then, I do not believe I would like to visit that country by night. At least, not when the sinister stars are out. And nothing could bribe me to drink the new city water of Arkham. And that's the end of the story. No. (laughs) (laughs) The end. They filled in the lake. Everything was fine. It all began, old Ami said, with the meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials. And even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as a small island in the Miskatonic where the devil held court beside a curious stone altar older than the Indians. This is setting up the H.P. Lovecraft expanded universe. These were not haunted woods, and their fantastic dusk was never terrible till the strange days. Actually, I'm going to go back to that because that's an interesting point. He did He did sort of create the first he did. expanded universe. Yeah, uh, him and, and the, the artist collective that he exists yeah. in definitely set up the format for what would later become like expanded continuities. Right, yeah. Well, well wait, um, they originally set out with the intention of creating like a mythology that like would, they were like trying to seed a mythology, right? I don't think it was uh, intentional. No, at it just first. kind of worked out that way. Yeah, they started, you know, drawing on each other's ideas and going, "Oh, this character's cool. I'll put it in my or this, you know, this monster or this guy." This name in that's, some cases. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's not what I read. Like what what I and and this was a while ago, so my memory could be fuzzy. The last I heard about it was that he and his friends want like they looked at mythologies of old and how and they, and they wanted to to make one of their own. So that if they all decided that if they all referenced like Cthulhu or the Necronomicon, that they might be able to start a mythology. Hmm. That's not what I've heard, but yeah, I that's, could be misinformed. I've, yeah, I've never read anything that suggested that. Well, you, I think you guys have done more looking into it than I have. So what I've read about the mythology was that like the Necronomicon has never been explained, and the reason for that is that if the Necronomicon was explained. There could be no more news stories that come out of it. Like, you lay the groundwork, you keep it there. So his refusal to put an exact face on some things, just to kind of describe them, you know, in suggestions, basically, created this ground where other authors could take his work and go, well, since this wasn't defined, I can just do this instead. Yeah, and things like... um... Lovecraft would write a story and have a a random mention for, I think, Haster, for mm-hmm. instance, was mentioned in a Lovecraft story just out of context with no just real explanation. And other authors would take that name and then make it into a character or yep. yeah. um, you know, a, a place or a thing and expand on it. And then sometimes Lovecraft would even go back and building off of the foundation that they had set would then use that in a new way, you know, expanding <laughs> on it himself. So yeah, very much a uh, predating it, the Marvel Cinematic Universe of the mm-hmm. early or literary even just, world. just comic book universes, right. really. Right, Like these shared continuities that multiple creators operate in. No, no wait, uh, what, what was the name of that guy that... You said like like two minutes ago. There are several names mentioned, Chris. You're gonna have to be more specific. Uh, the, like the 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 elder god. Oh, not, oh Haster. Not... Don't say it again. I, I'm sorry, you you broke up. Could you say that one more time, please? I'm, I'm not saying it a third time. 
<laughs> You're not getting me. <laughs> oh, you mean Haster? Oh, no. Also, Kane, I, I have to take offense with you saying that uh, no one knows where the Necronomicon came from or the history of it because it was clearly written by Abdul Alhazred, whose name mm-hmm. translates into Abd, the son of, the son of Hazred. It's true. Which just goes to show that, you know, Lovecraft really didn't understand anything about the people that he was just no. stealing right. from. Well, he did just his, mostly his call him the contempt. mad Arab. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I'm sure he had reason to be a little bit cross. Oh, no, no. He was insane. <laughs> oh, right. Right. It all began, old Ami said, with the meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials. And even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as the small island in the Miskatonic, where the devil held court beside a curious stone altar older than the Indians. These were not haunted woods, and their fantastic dusk was never terrible till the strange days. Then there had come that white noontide cloud, that string of explosions in the air, and that pillar of smoke from the valley far in the wood. And by night, all Arkham had heard of the great rock that fell out of the sky and bedded itself in the ground beside the well at the Naum Gardener place. Nahum? What if I just landed on someone, <laughs> and just the entire time that they were investigating it, there's just, like, two arms and two legs sticking out from beneath? <laughs> you killed my sister! Nice. That was the house which had stood where the blasted heath was to come. I'm gonna be so drunk at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> Implying that we're not drunk already. (laughs) The trim, white Nahum Gardener house amid its fertile gardens and orchards. Nahum had come to town to tell people about the stone and had dropped in at Ami Pierce's on the way. Ami was 40 then, and all the queer things were fixed very strongly in his mind. He and his wife had gone with the three professors from Miskatonic University who hastened out the next morning to see the weird visitor from unknown stellar space and had wondered why Nahum had called it so large the day before. It had shrunk, Nahum said, as he pointed out the big brownish mound above the ripped earth and charred grass near the archaic well sweep in his front yard. I swear it was bigger before. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just small today. It's, it's, it's fine. It it's happens cold. to every man. Yeah. It, it must have been in the pool. <laughs> but the wise men answered cold. that stones do not shrink. Its heat lingered persistently and Nahum declared it had glowed faintly in the night. The professors tried it with a geologist's hammer, and found it was oddly soft. It was, in truth, so soft as to be almost plastic, and they gouged rather than chipped a specimen to take back to the college for testing. They took it in an old pail borrowed from Nahum's kitchen, for even the small piece refused to grow cool. On the trip back, they stopped at Ami's to rest, and seemed thoughtful when Mrs. Pierce remarked that the fragment was growing smaller and burning the bottom of the pail. Truly, it was not large, but perhaps they had taken less than they thought. The day after that, all this was in June of 82, the professors had trooped out again in a great excitement. As they passed Ami's, they told him what queer things the specimen had done, and how it had faded wholly away when they put it in a glass beaker. The beaker had gone, too, and the wise men talked of the strange stone's affinity for silicon. It had acted quite unbelievably in that well-ordered laboratory, doing nothing at all and shewing no occluded gases when heated on charcoal, being wholly negative in the borax bead, and soon proving itself absolutely non-volatile at any producible temperature, 
including that of the oxyhydrogen blowpipe. On an anvil, it appeared highly malleable, and in the dark, its luminosity was very marked. Mm -hmm. It'd be really cool if something was happening. (laughs) Um, Real quick, I just want to point out that... uh, Yeah. That uh, <laughs> er, earlier, Lovecraft communicated to the readers that it glowed at night. Mm-hmm. And then in the laboratory, he communicated again that it glows. Like, like yeah. p- pick and choose where you want these tidbits to be fed to the reader. Yeah, it's a, it's a silly putty that glows in the dark is what I'm getting from this, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, like, this bullshit would be acceptable, maybe, if this was the prologue to a novel. But this is a short story. You don't have the word count (laughs) to do this, Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Have some things happen. Also, it sounds like this would have been a much more interesting story if it was following one of the lab technicians. Yeah, that could be cool. Yeah, I think some things are going to happen here, guys. Oh, my God. Soon. Soon. On an anvil, it appeared highly malleable, and in the dark, its luminosity was very marked. Stubbornly refusing to grow cool, it soon had the college in a state of real excitement, and when upon heating before the spectroscope, it displayed shining bands unlike any known colors of the normal spectrum, there was much breathless talk of new elements, bizarre optical properties, and other things which puzzled men of science are wont to say when faced by the unknown. Small aside here... Mm-hmm. Lovecraft, amongst his many other weaknesses, didn't actually understand science or the visible spectrum, because if it's a color that we have never seen before, it's because we cannot see it. Right. Yeah. Like... (laughs) Yeah. So if the rock affected people to, like, expand their visual spectrum, that would make way more sense? But it's not. That's not what's happening. Right. Right. If your if your human eyes can perceive it, then it is visible. Well, I, I, actually, maybe we should withhold judgment because maybe they maybe it gets to that. Maybe it's like some sort of don't, psychological don't give resonance. him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> hey, maybe maybe it's just allowing people <laughs> to see ultraviolet. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. maybe they become mantis shrimp. Whoa, and can see like a hundred and forty four colors. Mantis shrimp aren't real they're pokemon <laughs> i choose you Can, ch- change change my mind mantis shrimp is a pokemon change my mind all right I... listeners challenge accepted yep hot as it was they tested wait, it wait real a... quick oh my are god they what? allowed to reference a, a fucking video that shows mantis shrimp interacting in the wild i mean all bets are off man it's a it's a pokemon battle yeah change his mind it's mantis shrimp versus chris's brain <laughs> That's that's not a fair fight. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's mean. Hot as it was, they tested it in a crucible with all the proper reagents. Water did nothing. Hydrochloric acid was the same. Nitric acid. How interesting. And even aqua regia <laughs> merely hissed and spattered against its torrid invulnerability. Ami had difficulty in recalling all these things, but recognized some solvents as I mentioned them in the usual order of use. There were ammonia and caustic soda, alcohol and ether, nauseous carbon disulfide, and a dozen others. But although the weight grew steadily less as time passed, and the fragments seemed to be slightly cooling, 
There was no change in the solvents to shew that they had attacked the substance at all. It was a metal, though beyond a doubt. It was magnetic, for one thing, and after its immersion in the acid solvents, there seemed to be very faint tra- and after its immersion <clears throat> in the acid solvents, there seemed to be very faint traces of the widman Stoughton figures found on meteoric iron. When the cooling had grown very considerable, the testing was carried on in glass. And it was in a glass beaker that they left all the chips made of the original fragment during the work. I'm here. I'm here. The next morning, both chips and beaker were gone without trace, and only a charred spot marked the place on the wooden shelf where they had been. It should not, by the way, Uh have been easier to read the fucking... goddamn barbarian book yeah than this i completely Anything? blanked on the name of that one for a second eye of argon yeah it should not have been easier to I read know. aloud eye of argon this prose is so clunky this story would be only be improved by back titties i mean again i've said it before i think i said it during lair of the white worm the one thing that you can give eye of argon is shit was always happening in that yes. story yes there was always action. It wasn't good action, but at least but, there was but stuff. We were, yeah, we were heading somewhere. Yeah. We were doing things. All this, the professors told Ami as they paused at his door, and once more he went with them to see the stony messenger from the stars. Ugh. Though this time his wife did not accompany him. The stony now... messenger from the stars, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that what we're <laughs> calling meteors now? <laughs> That's what we're calling them. I think that's just what a preppy guy who discovers weed calls himself on Facebook. The stony, ma- yeah, I could see that. Just like a a dr- like a, a guy that sells pot out of his backpack with a with a pop <laughs> collar on his polo shirt. Yep, yep. The stony <laughs> messenger. I'm the stony messenger, man. I don't know. Yeah. I'm I'm actually kind of visualizing the lightning rod salesman from something wicked this way comes. <laughs> <laughs> hey kids, I got a stony messenger from the stars for you here. Nice. It had now most certainly shrunk, and even the sober professors could not doubt the truth of what they saw. (laughs) The drunk ones, though, were way (laughs) fucking into it. (laughs) It's true. All around... It's the only way to go. All around the dwindling brown lump near the well was a vacant space, except where the earth had caved in, and whereas it had been a good seven feet across the day before, it was now scarcely five. It was still hot and the sages studied its surface curiously as they detached another and larger piece with hammer and chisel. They gouged deeply this time, and as they pried away the smaller mass, they saw that the core of the thing was not quite homogenous. Like milk? Like milk. (laughs) They had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large colored globule embedded in the substance. The color, which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum, was almost impossible to describe. It had a delicious caramel filling. Mmm, caramel. <laughs> okay, here's a challenge that I want to issue to people who read Lovecraft. Cut off a small appendage every time he says impossible to describe and see if you can walk and open doors when you're done. <laughs> They're going to look like David clone. That's not good. <laughs> you know what? Fuck you guys. <laughs> I'm, my money's on the meteor being filled with creamy nougat. Yep. <laughs> I'm I'm basically picturing one of those cowtail caramels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are good. I haven't had one of those in a mm. long time. Oh man, the only thing that could make this any better is if they open up the rock and the avatars in there. <laughs> Just micro versions. Yeah. Ang or Cora? Actually, I think it's a wet 
It's a very Dang. wet, damp egg that will open up. I thought you meant the blue aliens. And then no. a creature <laughs> will jump out and attach itself to Ami's face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then lay its eggs in his chest. Nice. Like where you going? Like where you heads And then up. at some point, a xenomorph will pop out. And uh-huh. the rest of the story will get really good. Yeah, that sounds cool. Another goddamn bug hunt. What if what if they open up the game rock? over man game over man? What if they open up the rock and it's just the Doom Slayer in there, and then he comes out and demons start spawning in, and he starts killing demons with a shotgun. Great metal, and we get some great metal music. I mean, Nicolas Cage would definitely star in that movie. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I totally. No, yeah. I'm just thinking about Nicolas Cage, like when he's like ramped up crazy, Nicolas Cage playing the Doom guy. <laughs> and, I feel like that's I, necessary. I like I like it. Someone needs to make that happen. Nicholas Cage as the Doom guy. Oh my god, that would be so good. <laughs> Side note, watch Mandy. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and then follow it up with the color out of space. Yep. Yeah. They had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large then colored Then follow it up with the Wicker Man. Don't, don't, don't. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't. Why, why would you do that to yourself? <sighs> Bees! Before we continue, I just want to relay a story where Joe sat me down. I think it was during Christmas, and we watched The the Wicker Man. And for Christmas, I got this little chocolate container thing. It was like a bunch of little chocolate bottles that had uh, liquor in them. And over the course of watching Wicker Man, I had taken all those, broken them open, and poured their contents into a cup to try and take myself away from what was happening i can't blame you for that and it's really disappointing because the original film is just so good yeah (sighs) they had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large colored globule embedded in the substance the color which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum was almost impossible to describe it was like a like a blue reddish green purplish Pinkish, lavender blue, dilly 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 dilly. <laughs> made up word, made up word. Squamous, squamous, niner. <laughs> yeah, at least Terry Pratchett had the dignity to make octarine something that made sense. That's... Yeah. Yeah. It was only by analogy that they called it color at all. Its texture was glossy, and upon tapping it appeared to promise both brittleness and hollowness. One of the professors gave it a smart blow with a hammer. That is not a smart blow. <laughs> yeah. And it. Oh my god, we've discovered this new thing in a new color. Hit it with a hammer. Hard. It's like the fucking biologist in uh, Prometheus who goes and tries to pet a space snake barehanded. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. One of the professors gave it a smart blow with a hammer, and it burst with a nervous little pop. Nothing was emitted, and all trace of the thing vanished with the puncturing. It left behind a hollow spherical space about three inches across, and all thought it probable that others would be discovered as the enclosing substance wasted away. What? Conjecture was vain, so after a futile attempt to find additional globules by drilling, the seekers left again with their new specimen, which proved, however, as baffling in the laboratory as its predecessor had been. Although delicious. Yeah, can we skip ahead to... I mean, it's it's all this, man. Like, skip ahead to what? I mean, <sighs> some stuff happens. 
This it this is as happening as things get in a, in the writing of HP. No, well that's not true. He has some action because he cynically wanted to sell this shit to magazines. But like I don't know what you want. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean just... we we need to provide this context for the listeners or they'll be very <laughs> confused. What I want is to be reading The King in Yellow and I'll not this. Tell you what I want, what I really really want. So tell us what you want, what you really really want. <laughs> No, I'm not going to finish that. A zig a zig No! <laughs> I'm specifically not going to finish that. You didn't. It's true. That's why David's a closer. That's right. I got to get with my friends, you know? <sighs> God, we're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from being almost plastic, having heat, magnetism, and slight luminosity, cooling slightly in powerful acids possessing an unknown spectrum, wasting away in air, and attacking silicon <sighs> compounds with mutual destruction as a result, it presented no identifying features whatsoever. And at the end of the test, the college scientists were forced to own that they could not place it. It was nothing of this earth, but a piece of the great outside, and as such, dowered yeah, with outside properties space, and obedient to outside laws. All right, can you guys just, uh, just text me? When you're done, and I'll I'll come back and talk about stuff. No, no, you're you're stuck here like the rest of us. <laughs> that night, very well. There was a thunderstorm, and when oh, the professors hey, went happened. out to Nahum's the next day, they met with a bitter disappointment. The stone, magnetic as it had been, must have had some peculiar electrical property, for it had drawn the lightning, as Nahum said, with a singular persistence. Six times within an hour, the farmer saw the lightning strike the furrow in the front yard, and when the storm was over, nothing remained but a ragged pit by the ancient well-sweep, half-choked with caved-in earth. Digging had borne no fruit, and the scientists verified the fact of the utter vanishment. The failure was total, so that nothing was left to do but go back to the laboratory and test again the disappearing fragment left carefully cased in lead. By hitting it with a hammer. Hard. No, just your head. That fragment lasted a week, at the end of which nothing of value had been learned of it. When it had gone, Good. <laughs> no residue was left behind, and in time, the professors felt scarcely sure they had indeed seen with waking eyes that cryptic vestige of the fathomless gulfs outside. That lone, weird message from other universes and other realms of matter, force, and entity. What the scientists didn't know is that it disappeared because the intern kept sneaking in and eating bits off of it. <laughs> like peanut brittle. <laughs> That reminds me of a movie that I suggest to a lot of people, and I don't know if anyone's ever actually taken me up on it. It's called The Immaculate Conception of Little Dizzle. And if you've I've never seen it, you should watch it. Okay. As was natural, the Arkham Papers made much of the incident with its collegiate sponsoring and sent reporters to talk with Nahum Gardner and his family. At least one Boston Daily also sent a scribe, and Nahum quickly became a kind of local celebrity. He was a lean, genial person of about 50, living with his wife and three sons on the pleasant farmstead in the valley. He and Ami exchanged visits frequently, as did their wives, and Ami had nothing but praise for him after all these years. He seemed slightly proud of the notice his place had attracted, and talked often of the meteorite in the succeeding weeks. That July and August were hot, and Nahum worked hard at his haying in the ten-acre pasture across Chapman's Brook his rattling wane wearing deep ruts in the shadowy lanes between. 
The labor tired him more than it had in other years, and he felt that age was beginning to tell on him. Then fell the time of fruit and harvest. That's this time of year. It is. Oh, man. The pears and apples slowly ripened. Go to our Patreon. We'll buy a theremin so so Kane doesn't have to keep doing that. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it that way no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. probably true. The pears and apples slowly ripened, and Nahum vowed that his orchards were prospering as never before. The fruit was growing to phenomenal size and unwanted gloss and in such abundance that extra barrels were ordered to handle the future crop. But with the ripening came sore disappointment, for of all that gorgeous array of specious lusciousness not one single jot was fit to eat. Into the fine flavor of the pears and apples had crept a stealthy bitterness and sickishness, so that even the smallest of bites induced a lasting disgust. Just like reading H.P. Lovecraft. (laughs) It was the same with the melons and tomatoes, and Nahum sadly saw that his entire crop was lost. Quick to connect events, he declared that the (laughs) meteorite had poisoned the soil and thanked heaven that most of the other crops were in the upland lot along the road. You're a fucking genius. (laughs) Gee, I wonder if that thing that literally dissolved into the earth of my farm might have had an effect on the earth of my farm. (laughs) Ah, science, kids. It was really different in 1920. (laughs) Winter came early and was very cold. Ami saw Nahum less often than usual and observed that he had begun to look worried. The rest of the family, too, seemed to have grown taciturn and were far from steady in their church going or their attendance at the various social events of the countryside. Oh no, not that. For this reserve or melancholy, no cause could be found. That's winter, probably just sunlight deprivation. Or the fact that a meteorite fell from the sky, no, no, it's, glowed it's weird colors, dissolved into the earth, and then poisoned his harvest. Like, aside from all of that, yeah, I, I can't figure out why they would be so off. Pure coincidence. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's it's pure coincidence. Everything's fine. And in fact, I think we should go camping right out <laughs> where the, the thing fell. It'll be fine. It'll be yeah, and, great. and pray, a and pray about it. I pray that this is over soon. <laughs> For this reserve or melancholy, no cause could be found, though all the household confessed now and then to poorer health and a feeling of vague disquiet. Nahum himself gave the most like definite statement of anyone when he said he was disturbed about certain footprints in the snow. They were the usual winter prints of red squirrels, white rabbits, and foxes, but the brooding farmer professed to see nothing not quite right about their nature and arrangement. He was never specific, but appeared to think that they were not as characteristic of the anatomy and habits of squirrels and rabbits and foxes as they ought to be. No, see, it, it's fine. They're just playing Twister. Ami listened without interest to this talk until one night when he drove past Nahum's house in his sleigh on the way back from Clark's Corners. There had been a moon, and a rabbit had run across the road, and the leaps of that rabbit were longer than either Ami or his horse liked. <laughs> the latter, indeed, had almost run away when brought up by a firm rain. Thereafter... I'm just picturing the rabbit just... You, you don't see it touch the ground. It just comes out from one brush and just a pure horizontal line goes to the across mm. the road to the other brush. There's like a science fiction, like, whoa, noise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<sighs> yep. Third of the way into this story, and we have a rabbit that jumps big. That's <laughs> the most exciting thing that's happened. Thereafter, Ami gave Nahum's tales more respect and wondered why the gardener dogs seemed so cowed and quivering every morning. They had, it developed, nearly lost the spirit to bark. In February, the McGregor boys from Meadow Hill were out shooting woodchucks, and not far from the gardener place bagged a very peculiar specimen. The proportions of its body seemed slightly altered in a queer way impossible to describe. While its face had taken on an expression which no one ever saw in a woodchuck before. Well, gee, Howard, maybe you can describe it since you're the goddamn storyteller. No, it's it's impossible to describe. <laughs> Everyone lop off another toe. Uh, I'm actually just going to lop off my head. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds time consuming. Just make sure you do it in a way that's impossible to describe with an expression no one ever saw on your face before. Mm-hmm. I'm also imagining yeah, like an that. expression which no one ever saw in a woodchuck before to be like a smile. Yeah, woodchucks don't have a vast range of, of facial expressions that right. they can create. I'm picturing like the weird teeth smiley things that people put together for emote icons. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the boys were genuinely frightened and threw the thing away at once so that only their grotesque tales of it ever reached the people of the countryside. But the shying of the horses near Nahum's house had now become an acknowledged thing, and all the basis for a cycle of whispered legend was fast taking form. What if this is how furries came no. to be? No. People vowed that the snow melted faster around Nahum's than it did anywhere else, and early in March there was an odd discussion in Potter's general store at Clark's Corners. Stephen Rice had driven past gardeners in the morning, and had noticed the skunk cabbages coming up through the mud by the woods across the road. Never were things of such size seen before, and they held strange colors that could not be put into any words. Their sh- that counts. Another toe. <laughs> Their shapes were monstrous, and the horse had snorted at an odor which struck Stephen as wholly unprecedented. This could be effective horror. Like, these are, you know, ordinary things. Like, oh, there are woodchucks. But, but he's just, it's all fucking indescribable. Right. Which makes it not scary because it's like, uh, I don't know. I, I just, we just have to imagine bullshit. Like the, the woodchucks are making emoticon smiles because we don't know what the fuck we're supposed to be afraid of. And that's not how you do it. That's, you're not doing it right. It's not how any of this works. I will say that I am of the mind, like I, I'm a big fan of horror that does not show you the monster. Sure. And that's not what this is. Well, it's, it's sort of similar to that, but it's, it's mostly Lovecraft foisting all of the heavy lifting off onto Mm. his audience. Yep. Like I'm going to put these things here and you guys are going to do all of the work because I can't Mm. describe it to you. You don't get to know what the main character looks like. You don't get to know what any of this is like, you do it. Well, I mean, again, the main character has just become a cameraman. Yeah. I just want to point out that, I'm sorry, I keep bringing this up. Who was the guy that wrote The King in Yellow? What was his name? Uh, fuck. What the hell was his name? Uh... While someone looks it <laughs> up, I want to point out that he accomplished describing the indescribable. Oh, yeah. A single paragraph with the the costume party and... Oh, what a lovely mask you're wearing. Mm. I'm not wearing a mask. Robert W. Chambers. No mask. Yup. No mask. 
like that like like there there was no description that was purely dialogue it 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 tells you ev- like there's something incredibly wrong mm-hmm. with what's mm-hmm. going on here right. meanwhile we just have all of these like these are weird things that are happening you should know lots of weird things are happening by the they way sure are weird. weird things are happening yep i'm not going to tell you any specific details but boy howdy were they weird mhm Hey, David, I made a hamburger the other day that was delicious. Yeah? What'd you put on it? I can't describe the things. They were so delicious that I can't even articulate with human language what they were. Boy, howdy, that sandwich is probably going to spawn an entire literary genre. (laughs) (sighs) Now I'm just picturing the talking burger from Whataburger. (laughs) Woo! Uh, where the are we done I, I'm, yet? I'm looking for where I left off. Hold on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Not what a burger. Good, good burger. burger. Yeah. What a burger is a chain. That. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I help you? <laughs> People vowed that the snow melted faster around Nahum's than it did anywhere else. And early in March, there was an odd discussion in Potter's General Store at Clark's Corners. Stephen Rice had driven past Gardeners in the morning and had noticed the skunk cabbages coming up through the mud by the woods across the road. Never were things of such size seen before, and they held strange colors that could not be put into any words. Their shapes were monstrous, not. and the horse had snorted at an odor which struck Stephen as wholly unprecedented. That afternoon, several persons drove past to see the abnormal growth, and all agreed that plants of that kind ought never to sprout in a healthy world. The bad fruit of the fall before was freely mentioned, and it went from mouth to mouth that there was a poison in Nahum's ground. Of course it was the meteorite, and remembering how strange the men from the college had found that stone to be, several farmers spoke about the matter to them. You know, they like some some farmers said that their sheep were killed, and they were inviscerated in such a way that only a werewolf could produce. Of course it was a werewolf. Moving on. One day they paid Nahum a visit, but having no love of wild tales and folklore were very conservative in what they inferred. The plants were certainly odd, but all skunk cabbages are more or less odd in shape and odor and hue. Perhaps some mineral element from the stone had entered the soil, but it would soon be washed away. And as for the footprints and frightened horses, of course this was mere country talk which such a phenomenon as the aerolite would be certain to start. There was really nothing for serious men to do in cases of wild gossip, for superstitious rustics will say and believe anything. And so all through the strange days the professors stayed away in contempt. Only one of them, when given two files of dust for analysis in a police job over a year and a half later, recalled that the queer color of the skunk cabbage had been very like one of the anomalous bands of light shewn by the meteor fragment in the college spectroscope. Real quick. Was that H.P. Lovecraft, like, on sub some subconscious level showing self-awareness? Um, He was certainly sort of coming down on the side of the common man over the... Yeah. Like, I, I noticed that myself, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest. Like, like, I'm trying to pay attention, but this is so impenetrable. I want to change my earlier analogy where... Like the whole like quicksand thing. This is like ice. <laughs> like you just slide right mm-hmm. along. <sighs> and like the brittle globule found embedded in the stone from the abyss, 
The samples in this analysis case gave the same odd bands at first, though later they lost the property. <laughs> the trees budded prematurely around Nahum's, and at night they swayed ominously in the wind. Nahum's second son Thaddeus, a lad of fifteen, swore that they swayed also when there was no wind, Whoa. but even the gossips would not credit this. They were ants. Certainly, however, restlessness was in the air. The entire Gardner family developed a habit of stealthy listening, though not for any sound which they could consciously name. The listening was, indeed, rather a product of moments when consciousness seemed half to slip away. If you're not listening stealthily, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> listening is a very passive thing to do. I'm listening. I, I thought you might have I'm actually listening. left the room. I'm still listening. The listening, I'm listening. listening was indeed rather a product of moments when consciousness seemed half to slip away is probably a great subtitle for this podcast. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I'll make a note of that. I might put that in the description, actually. <laughs> Unfortunately, such moments increased week by week till it became common speech that something was wrong with all Nahum's folks. When the early sac saxifrage? When the early saxifrage came out, it had another strange color. It sounds like the world's most terrible instrument. <laughs> saxifrage. Not quite like that of the skunk cabbage, but plainly related and equally unknown to anyone who saw it. It's purple. It's purple, Howard. It's purple. <laughs> it's, it's Nahum took some blossoms to Arkham and shooed them to the editor of the Gazette, but that dignitary did no more than write a humorous article about them in which the dark fears of rustics were held up to polite ridicule. It was a mistake of Nahum's to tell a stolid city man about the way the great overgrown morning cloak butterflies behaved in connection with these saxifrages. <sighs> yep. April brought a kind of madness to the country folk and began that disuse of the road past Nahum's, which led to its ultimate abandonment. This book needs a montage. It was the vegetation. <laughs> I'm waiting for a montage. All the orchard trees blossomed forth in strange colors and through the stony soil of the yard and adjacent pasturage, there sprang up a bizarre growth, which only a botanist could connect with the proper flora of the region. No sane, wholesome They're colors were farmers. anywhere to be seen, except in the green grass and leafage. But everywhere, those hectic and prismatic variants of some diseased underlying primary tone without a place among the known tints of earth. The Dutchman's breeches became a thing of sinister menace, and the bloodroots grew insolent in their chromatic perversion. Tasha's chromatic perversion. Ami and the gardeners thought that most of the colors had a sort of haunting familiarity, and decided that they reminded one of the brittle globule in the meteor. In case you guys forgot about that, uh, we need to we need to make a choice. We either need to stop doing this, or or find a place where things happen. Like fast forward five or six paragraphs. See, I'm just kind of waiting to get to the end of a paragraph with a a solid break. Uh -huh. Um, but I keep stopping the middle of paragraphs it's like you get to the middle of a paragraph and it just becomes painful to continue mm -hmm. everyone that could tell yell out shit what yeah actually david let's have some fun yep uh fast forward well, not fast forward because it's a book scroll down to the paragraph or control f to the paragraph that starts with a feeble scratching okay because there's there's a bit that i want you to read that comes right after that paragraph right on <laughs> oh man i don't get to I, i'm gonna read the 
preceding yeah, yeah. paragraph There's something that, that, well that catches your eye that, yeah, absolutely just, jump on it. Just the preceding paragraph. Yeah, that's fine. Then there burst forth a frantic whinny from Ami's horse outside, followed at once by a clatter which told of a frenzied runaway. It's in Santa an, Claus. In another moment, horse and buggy had gone beyond earshot, leaving the frightened man on the dark stairs to guess what had sent them. But that was not all. There had been another sound out there. A sort of liquid splash. Water. It must have been the well. He had left Hero untied near it, and the buggy wheel must have brushed the coping and knocked in a stone. And still the pale phosphorescence glowed in that detestably ancient woodwork. God, how old the house was. Most of it built before 1670, and the gambrel roof not later than 1730. A feeble scratching on the floor downstairs now sounded distinctly, and Ami's grip tightened on a heavy stick he had picked up in the attic for some purpose. Slowly nerving himself. He can't even Don't tell me what the, the fucking purpose was. He had just yeah, picked up a the stick. Purpose. We know what the, the purpose was. He picked up a heavy stick to bash somebody's brains in. Mm-hmm. Right. Slowly nerving himself, he finished his descent and walked boldly toward the kitchen. But he did not complete the walk because what he sought was no longer there. It had come to meet him, and it was still alive, after a fashion. Whether it had crawled, or whether it had been dragged by an external force, Ami could not say. But the death had been at it. Everything had happened in the last half hour, but collapse, graying, and disintegration were already far advanced. There was a horrible brittleness, and dry fragments were scaling off. Ami could not touch it, but looked horrifiedly into the distorted parody that had been a face. What was it, Nahum? What was it? he whispered, and the cleft, bulging lips were just able to crackle out a final answer. Nothing. Nothing. The color. It burns. Cold and wet. But it burns. It lived in the well. I seen it. A kind of smoke, just like the flowers last spring. The well shone at night, fat and myrny and zenus, everything alive, sucking the life out of everything in that stone. It must have come in that stone, pisoned the whole place. Don't know what it wants, that round thing them men from the college dug out in the stone. They smashed it. It was that same color, just the same, like the flowers and plants. Must have been more of them seeds. Seeds. They growed. I seen it the first time this week. Must have got strong on Zenus. He was a big boy, full of life. It beats down your mind and then gets you. Burns ye up in the well water. You was right about that. Evil water. Zenus never coming back from the well. Can't get away. Draws ye. You know summit's coming, but tain't no use. I seen it time and again since Zenus was took. Was nabby, Ami. My head's no good. Don't know how long since I fed her. I'll get her if we ain't careful. Just a color. Her face is getting to have that color sometimes toward night. And it 
spines and sucks. It come from some place why things ain't as they is here. One of them professors said so. He was right. Look out, Tommy. It'll do something more. Sucks the life out. But that was all. That which spoke could speak no more because it had completely caved in. And I think we'll we'll cut there. Yeah. It was it was funny that you kind of had a southern draw. Yeah, because it's very northwest, like northeastern. Yeah, um, it's like Mainer. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, but it, yeah. it just sort of immediately went Appalachian in my head. Color no, out of space. Um, man, if if this whole if this short story was just that, like this guy, presumably some sort of interviewer, writer, journalist, mm-hmm. whatever meeting with this guy and the guy explaining what was going on and over the course of that like the journalist begins to note like this guy is decaying in front of my Mm -hmm. eyes and then it just gets to this that would have been much more compact interesting yeah yeah i think it's interesting though like we were talking at the beginning of the episode about how lovecraft was very much sort of a wannabe aristocrat and Mm -hmm. this you know person with very little respect for rural life. And yet here in this story, you know, we see him on several occasions sort of talking about the rustics as if they were the ones who really knew what was going on and the people from the college being just out of touch and refusing to believe it. I mean, you can kind of draw a parallel because he liked to speak about, for example, indigenous people that like they have like a mystic understanding of the land. Yep. Right. Right. So like maybe there's like that there's some kind of parallel that you can draw there that is interesting. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's it's interesting, and maybe it just comes down to his xenophobia and fear of rustic, simple folk and mm-hmm. outsiders was always present, but his sort of bread and butter was the we have science now and science trumps everything, but we only think we know what's going on and science right. is right. going to, you know, just prove to be another flawed tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And just the, his fear of change and of progress as a thing. Yeah. There, there's something there. I'm not sure how to unpack it. Actually. It's, it's interesting. I would say that, we see evidence of the same mentality today. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft came of age during the end of the Victorian era. Sure. Mm-hmm. And he died, you know, and was 1937 from fucking stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. And so he was, you know, kind of, you know, and by the time he died, I think he was even like a socialist mm-hmm. at that point. Or he had moved in that direction. Yeah. But we see evidence of what H.P. Lovecraft was because he came from money. Mm -hmm. He had this leaning towards wanting to be an aristocrat. Mm -hmm. And he saw people from different countries and people from different cultures as eroding his way of life. Sure. And instead of looking inside and being like, hey, I'm the cause of my woes. Mm -hmm. Only I can change that. 
he saw these outside forces as working against him. And I think that's really the tragedy of HP Lovecraft is that it's, it's a continued cycle issues. Well, no, it's just a continued cycle. So today we see that exact same thing with white supremacy Mm -hmm. where instead of looking within themselves for what's gone wrong with their lives or looking at the people they've put into power Mm -hmm. as what's gone wrong with their lives, they look at these, you know, outside forces that they don't necessarily understand nor have a desire to understand. Right. And they direct their ire, their fear and their anger at those things. Yeah. That makes sense. So, I mean, HP Lovecraft is, you know, a good example of trying to fix a problem Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist by looking at another problem that has nothing to do with, you know, those outside forces. Sure. Right, yeah. Although it's interesting that, he, again, you know, he did apparently grow older and as an older, <clears throat> excuse me, as an older person began, you know, supporting sort of progressive movements and right. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, was at least socialistic, if not an out and out socialist, um, right. could have something to do with the troubling rise of fascism throughout the world um, and deciding to instead of going down the road of Salvador Dali and openly supporting fascists, recognizing that, oh shit, this is bad business and I don't want nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that says something about his character, like regardless of how he spent most of his life, if you age into recognizing that I was wrong, mm-hmm. it doesn't absolve you of being a shit bag for most of your life, but it does at least say something about the quality of your, your character. Sure. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. And I think it's important to note that he was 46 when he died. Right. Yeah. So when we say older person, I don't want the listener to think that he was like in his sixties when he had this revelation. Sure. <laughs> sure. And you know, it's very you possible know. that if he hadn't died of stomach cancer, he too would have grown up to say that, uh, Charlton Heston was a genius. Although I, I do kind of like to think about the alternate timeline where where he started sort of absorbing more progressive ideas. And I've seen different takes. I've seen it said that he was supportive of of FDR and the New Deal. I've also seen seen biographers say that he didn't think that it was progressive enough. Hmm. So I'd be very interested in seeing, I mean, I, I can't because it's because we don't live in that timeline. Like when he, like him writing in his fifties, having absorbed these progressive ideas, but still writing weird fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Be, be I would have been really interested in seeing what that would look like. I have downloaded the Kindle version of I am Providence written by ST Josie mm-hmm. Joshi. And or Joshi, mm-hmm. and I'm going to read that because that that dude is the definitive biographer yeah. of H.P. Lovecraft. So I'm going to uncover if if H.P. Lovecraft died mm-hmm. as a better human being than the stories would say. Sure, that would be good to know. Actually, yeah. it would. It would. All right. Well, is there anything um, else we need to do here? Yeah, that that yeah. seems like I'm um, I'm gonna do do the the admin, but that seems like a good note to to leave on. Actually, I've got a better note to leave on. Um, David, do me a favor and Control F, impossible to describe. <laughs> ah, let's see here. Um, 
Only two matches. It should, like, you should only get one of those, I think. <laughs> right. It, try indescribable. <laughs> See if that comes up. Nope. What about unnameable? Nah, not in this one, I'm sure. Unnamed and unnameable. <laughs> <laughs> For a while, my mm. MySpace handle was unnameable horror. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, well, this isn't great radio, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us on. Um, does anyone have anything else that they'd like to add before we no, come to a close? Okay. That was a good time. Uh, if you would like to comment on what we discussed, you know, HP Lovecraft was a very interesting historical figure and, you know, a very interesting creator. And there's a lot of conversation to be had and we're open to having that conversation with you, the listeners. So feel free to leave a comment. And uh, also don't forget if you enjoyed what we do, don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, ring the bell. And if you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon. All of those things can be found at wegiveyoubrainworms.com. And thank you for listening. And we're sorry. We're so yeah, sorry. We're definitely sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Surprised you didn't make a theremin sound. I'm going to push the button. This has been a production of Brainworms Presents. Any copyrighted content contained within is used for purposes of review. Brainworms podcast is David Combs, Kane Magdalene, Christian Schaefer, and Joseph Wells. The theme music is HodgePod Number no. 1 by Brian Davis. If you like what you heard, you can support us and learn about our other projects at wegiveyoubrainworms.com or by leaving a review on your favorite listening app. <laughs>